Father, we ask now for this remaining time in our afternoon, Lord, that again, you would work in our hearts those pieces that are burning and yearning from hearing Zach speak on the call for us to cast the net wide, Lord, for your people, those who know you and slip away, and Father, those who do not know you yet, help us. Lord, I pray now as we look historically as to how we've done that here in colonial America and the encouragement, Lord, from our past and how it shapes our future, I pray you'd empower Don. Give him your unction, your encouragement. Lord, may he have joy. May our hearts burn that your people would know you all the more. The hour is yours, Father. It's an act of worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good to see the remnant out there. You know, the remnant will be blessed. Yes, I will. So y'all hang in there. Well, we'll take some amens if you want it. Before I uh, begin on our topic, I just want to say a, a word. The, uh, the history of the EPC that... Uh, I wrote it came out in 2016. I just want to just say again what a blessing it was to write that. We have something so special in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And it's the the one book I have written that I really felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to write it. I really did. I said, we have just got to do this. Some of our founders were passed away by that time, and I just thought, you know, the story of the founding generation of the EPC needs to be told, particularly for the younger ministers. And, uh, and I'm hoping today that some of this will be uh, really an encouragement to all of us, and especially as we come to the American context. The fact of the matter is not a whole lot has changed. In some ways it has, but yet the, the core of what it means to do ministry in the American context is still uh, very much what it's uh, about. Now I'm going to say something a little bit uh, about this uh, picture. But you know, uh, when we talk about the colonial period, we're talking about a massive undertaking of, of trying to plant Presbyterian churches uh, throughout the 13 colonies. And it was a yeoman task, and the Presbyteries, the ministers were all uh, committed to this. And a lot of the ministers, as with other denominations, had to serve multiple churches. And often they were traveling by horseback to the different uh, areas. Once there was one of these uh, colonial Presbyterian ministers that had on his uh, uh, outfit, and the uh, innkeeper could tell he was a clergyman. And as he uh, strolled into, on horseback into the, the inn, uh, the innkeeper came up to him and said, Sir, I can tell you're a clergyman. But I have a question for you. Are you a Presbyterian or a Methodist? He said, well, why do you ask? He said, well, a lot of Methodist ministers come by here too. And I would just have a question for you. I want to know what your expectations are. I have noticed over the years that when the uh, Methodist uh, circuit riders come in here, they really want to know, are you going to take good care of my horse? The Presbyterian ministers want to know, are you going to cook me a good meal and do I have a good bed to sleep in? And so the minister said, well, sir, I am a Presbyterian, but my horse, he's a Methodist. <laughs> so he was pretty quick, wasn't he? All right, this, this picture uh, comes from a 19th century book 
called the Presbyterian Memorial Volume, 1870. This was a book that was written after reunion of the old school and the new school in the North. And this was intended uh, to portray what we call the communion seasons that were used. We heard earlier today about the Scottish uh, preaching festivals and offering uh, the Lord's Supper. And you'll notice the preacher and clergyman there. You'll see the table set, the long table communion. People had come to the area. And a lot of this took place uh, on the frontier. Some of you may know the name Thomas Kidd. He's a Baptist historian. He is probably the, one of the living experts on the Great Awakening uh, today. And in his book by that title, The Great Awakening, uh, Dr. Kidd says there are really three streams that made up the Great Awakening in America. He said uh, New England Puritanism would be one of those. Some of the early uh, English uh, New England Puritans, like uh, uh, Cotton Mather, were very committed to evangelistic ministry. In fact, he would often uh, go out and itinerate and visit different churches, put a big emphasis on the new birth uh, in his preaching, and there was that uh, interest in uh, seeing revival in the churches among the New England Puritans. You also had continental pietists that immigrated uh, uh, you had the Dutch reform, German reform that had uh, come to this country and brought some of that pietist heritage from the 17th century uh, with them uh, to America. And then the third stream that Kidd mentions are the Scots-Irish. And particularly he uh, accents the communion seasons that were held among the Presbyterians which became one of the chief sources of evangelistic preaching in the, uh, uh, the colonies. And what I want to do this afternoon is just try to give you the big picture. And what I want to show to you is that the calling to do the work of evangelism is just a part of the DNA of what it means to be Presbyterian in America. It has been from the very beginning. And I want to, being a historian, I like to uh, deal with primary sources. And so I'm going to let you get it from the horse's mouth and not always just tell you the essence of it, but I want to put on the screen some of the uh, primary source material to show you what the colonials really thought and what they were doing and where they saw God's blessing uh, in their ministry. Now, when I was asked uh, to speak uh, during the uh, uh, Westminster Society, it was I was asked in particular reference to the new book that I've co-authored, and I want to just mention it to you briefly, not because I want to sell books, but because the EPC is mentioned prominently in the new book. There are a number of things that we wanted to do in this new history. I like to say it not, may not be the greatest, but it is the latest. It just came out uh, in March, published by Erdman's, and there were four Presbyterian historians that collaborated. I represented the EPC. Ken Stewart represented the PCA. Kenneth Felmeth, who's a professor at Fuller, represented uh, ECO. And then Garth Rosell of Gordon-Conwell Seminary represented the PCUSA. And we did that purposefully, because too often the story of Presbyterianism in America is told from the vantage point of one of those streams. We needed to have a a broader overview. The other thing is the story of the presence of minorities within Presbyterianism 
Native Americans, Latinos, African Americans, Koreans that have been Presbyterians in this country and the mark that they have left on the church. We wanted to include that. And then finally, we wanted to really accentuate kind of the evangelical stream, and thus the title Reformed and Evangelical across four centuries. Now, in the conclusion of our book, we came up with a list after working on this thing for about five years, what we like to call the shared allegiances among Presbyterians and evangelicals. And we talked about biblical authority, support for spiritual renewal, the missionary impulse, theological seriousness, and cultural transformation. What do we meant by that is, where is it the agenda and program of Presbyterians has overlapped with the larger evangelical movement in America. Now, I'm going to underscore the support for spiritual renewal uh, in my presentation this afternoon, which focuses uh, especially on um, evangelism. But uh, all four, I could say a lot about them, but I need to uh, keep moving. But I want to underscore this uh, relationship, that's what we call a symbiotic relationship between Presbyterians and evangelicals. And for some of you, that may make you a little anxious because the term evangelical is it's used by the, uh, the media in, in the political context is, it, in my personal opinion, is completely meaningless. It has very little to do with the historic understanding of what evangelicalism is. Not that there haven't been uh, some uh, uh, political connections with the evangelical movement, particularly beginning with the uh, neo-evangelical movement with Billy Graham as uh, evangelicals got organized. But uh, as we all know, we don't take everything we hear in the media seriously, and uh, particularly when it comes to historical matters. Some of you may know the name David Bevington. He's a very prominent British historian, and he's one of those unique persons who has really left his mark on scholarship of the, on the Great Awakening through his book that was published in 1989, Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, the 1730s to the 1980s. And what he did is he, he basically argued that there are four distinguishing marks, or he called it a four-point quadrilateral, quadrilateral that uh, is really identified with the evangelical movement ever since the time of the Great Awakening. The other thing that he underscored is the significant role of the Methodists, obviously, obviously uh, for the Great Awakening in uh, Britain. Now, of course, the Awakening in this country is much more Calvinistic in its orientation because of the influence of men like Edwards, Whitfield, and as we're going to see, the Presbyterians. But I think it really did help bring a balance. But what is interesting about his fourfold definition here about what it means to be an evangelical is it really has attracted a lot of attention and scholarship such that you can today, you can never read a new book on Christianity in America where it doesn't mention the Bevington thesis. And here's his summary of it at the end of this book. Evangelicals believe the Bible returning to its pages for teaching, consolation, and guidance. They saw the cross of Christ as central to their faith for the atonement saved them from their sins. They held that individuals must be converted so as to begin changed lives of allegiance to Christ. And they displayed an activism that carried the gospel to others and brought them help in their suffering. 
For all of the enormous differences between evangelicals, emphases on the Bible, the cross, conversion, and activism are together the features that they have displayed down the ages. I think all of us can identify with those and say that's certainly not the sum total of what it means to be Presbyterian, but we would resonate with those four core uh, principles. And what I want to hone in now is, is uh, especially the colonial understanding of what it means to be converted and what it means for us to uh, share the gospel with others and also to be concerned for the needs of others, those two particular points. When we talk about the origin of Presbyterianism uh, in America, there are typically three strains, and we can put the Scots with the Scots-Irish there, but English Puritans that came over to New England and uh, established congregational churches in New England. There were a lot of Presbyterians that came over. In fact, Cotton Mather, toward the end of his life, 1698, wrote a history of New England. And he said by the 1640s, 4,000 Presbyterians were in America. That was his estimate. And he had seen uh, them come on board ship uh, into Boston and other ports along the eastern seaboard. And he just said that there were uh, many Presbyterians uh, in the country. Now, the Continental Reform groups, and here the two largest ones would be the Dutch Reformed and the French Huguenots. Okay? And some of the earliest Presbyterian churches in America uh, had Dutch Reformed folks and French Huguenots that joined those Presbyterian churches because of their shared theology. So you've got the Continental. Uh, immigrants and of course the Scots-Irish which would be the biggest component and then you also had uh, those that would come over from uh, Scotland and we're going to talk about uh, the first Presbytery 1706 the first Synod we're not going to have time to talk about the Adopting Act in 1729 but uh, if you have an interest in that I can certainly direct you to a lot of material that's written on it um, all right, some of the earliest churches, and again, I want to paint the picture of the context here. Presbyterians especially populated some of the congregational churches in Connecticut and on Long Island. Some of them in Long Island began to organize themselves as Presbyterians in the early decades of the 17th century. And you find testimony to them ordaining elders and setting them apart and trying to organize the local church uh, under the Presbyterian uh, form of government. So you see the churches there, and you'll see the uh, dates. I've always been intrigued by the Jamaica church on uh, Long Island, which still is in existence. In the text, I found at least three different dates associated with it. But I can remember reading in the, uh, the media not too many years ago about the Jamaica church on Long Island celebrating its 350th anniversary. Isn't that incredible? A few years ago, I went to the Center Presbyterian Church and participated in their 250th anniversary. Started in 1765. But we're talking about the 1640s and 50s. Amazing. Well, here are some of the earliest churches you see listed there. And these congregations... Uh, were uh, in the, what we know as the, uh, the middle colonies uh, south of New England, but to, not in what we would know later as the southern colonies. Now, the father of American Presbyterianism, Francis McKeamy, you'll see his dates there. He was a, uh, 
Scots-Irish ordained minister from the Presbytery of Lagan, and he heard about this, the need for Presbyterian clergy in the colonies. He heeded that call, came to America, and uh, came to Maryland, began to do some of his mission work in Maryland, Virginia, and a little bit in North Carolina. And uh, planting churches, and uh, also he was very interested in trying to recruit uh, some other ministers uh, to come over and serve. He spent a few years in Barbados doing church planting work there. And then as he comes back to Virginia in 1699, he got a dissenter's license. If you remember your American history, most of the southern colonies were established Anglican churches. There's much more liberty in places like Maryland and uh, Pennsylvania where uh, more toleration of religious differences, but uh, particularly in the South, it was uh, difficult, and, and in other parts of uh, uh, the country also. So he got this dissenter's license. He takes a trip to London, uh, trying to get some uh, resources together to bring some more ministers over here. And he gets John Hampton and George McNish to come back over uh, with him uh, as Presbyterian clergy to help pastor some of these congregations. Well, probably what put uh, McKimey on the, the screen, so to speak, uh, for Americans at this point in time was his very public trial in New York. He and John Hampton preached in Long Island in New York. They were arrested and thrown in prison for 46 days because they did not have permission from Lord Cornbury, the governor of New York. Well, we have a dissenter's license. I have a license in Barbados. No good. Anglicanism was established as uh, taxes paid for the clergy. A number of Presbyterian ministers had actually lost their pulpits in New York, and uh, the Anglican ministers moved in there. Well, McKeeman was very shrewd, and he was uh, able to defend himself, had some other lawyers. Uh, so he won his case so that the act of toleration in Britain, 1689, under William and Mary, was legitimate, uh, and that Lord Cornbury was violating that. But Cornbury, just to get even, because he was mean, made McKimmy pay all the court costs for the prosecution and the defense. But the assembly there in New York was so furious about this, they actually deposed Cornbury, and he lost his office as the governor of New York. So throughout the colonies, McKimmy, as Cotton Mather called him, that excellent servant of the Lord. And he said what he has done in winning this trial is probably going to bode well for religious liberty in the southern colonies. And of course, he's in New England, so he's talking about everywhere south of there. So McKimmy really got a name there. His church planting here, so one of his churches, Rehoboth Church in Maryland, he planted five churches during his time of ministry, what he's known for famously among us. The first presbytery, you'll see the seven ministers listed there. There's McNish and Hampton, which uh, came over with him. They first met in Philadelphia in the spring of 1706. First presbytery minutes. Do we have any clerks in the room? God bless you. You know about the challenge of keeping those notes. Well, I hate to break it to you, but it's been a part of Presbyterianism from the very beginning. Um, and uh, the, uh, the minutes there, that's page three. Actually, the first two pages of the minutes uh, are gone. 
But we do have this third page from the original meaning, and what are they doing in the notes we have left? They're examining a minister for ordination, which again reminds us how important uh, that is as a part of our uh, calling uh, in a presbytery. And thankfully, if you ever have an interest, the Presbyterian Historical Society, a gentleman named Guy Clett, went through all those manuscript minutes and had them all typeset, and you can get the entire minutes from 1706 to 1788. And it is absolutely fascinating to read through the colonial minutes. And I'll tell you what you'll find, Presbyterians hadn't learned a thing in 300 years. We really haven't. I, it just blows my mind when I read those minutes. We are still fussing about the same things and concerned about the same things and doing the same things. What, what I want you to know from the get-go, though, uh, along with our theme is, McKimmy wrote a letter to one of his friends, and he made it very explicit that one of the reasons we're getting together is that we're interested uh, in uh, discussing the proper measures for advancing religion and propagating religion in our various stations. You see what he mentions there. Uh, and to maintain such a correspondence as may conduce the improvement of our ministerial ability by prescribing text to be preached by two of our number at every meeting, which performance is subjected to the censure of our brethren. Now what's fascinating about this, these Presbyterians on the frontier in these areas where they're planting churches, they just wanted to hear good preaching. As they said, when we get together at Presbytery, we just want to hear the ministers preach. And when we're here as much as we can, and they would actually assign passages. Brother so-and-so is going to preach on this text uh, next time we get together. So they're very interested in improving their ministerial ability, but especially in uh, the whole issue of church planning and how we can uh, be successful in evangelistic work. Here's, a, here's an example of one of the churches. This is the Newcastle Church in Delaware. Uh, uh, which had called a Presbyterian a pastor and then became a member of the uh, first Presbytery in 1706. What about Presbytery practice? I mentioned about reading the minutes. There are lots of things you find there, but I want you to have a sense that they were very interested from the get-go on church planting, which they saw as one of the fundamental means of evangelism in reaching people with the gospel. You find directives for ministers. All the ministers must preach on one chapter of the Bible every Sabbath. In other words, we're not going to just uh, leave it up to uh, uh, folks not fulfilling their duty. We want the ministers, and they're very specific about what they wanted them to do. Resolving conflicts in congregation. Uh, prepare and examine candidates for ministry. Encourage the work of lay elders. By the second meeting of Presbytery, lay elders were present. It was just the ministers at that first meeting, but in the in the books, it talks about the lay elders. And when many lay elders, ruling elders, didn't come to Presbytery, they made a note of it and said, we've got to work on this. They were very committed to Presbyterianism. It is a shared leadership between the clergy and the ruling elders. The review book of records from the churches. That's always the fun committee to be on in Presbytery, isn't it? To read the minute books. But it is a necessary task which keeps us... Uh, on track, expanding the Presbyterian organization. But I especially want you to note this letter that they wrote to the pastors in Boston in 1706. They said, we urgently need to start eight more Presbyterian churches. And we need help of resources to help fund these pastors uh, and to be able to pull this off. I didn't mention McKimey 
basically opened a mercantile business. His father-in-law was pretty wealthy. He had 500 acres there in Virginia, and he supported his ministry through that business so that he could be this itinerant evangelist in helping start these churches in the Presbytery. But they needed funds uh, uh, to start these uh, churches. And here was their plea. We need this help to carry on so necessary and glorious work Otherwise, many will remain in a perishing condition as to spiritual things. This was the burden that they had. Eventually, they become within a decade a synod, 25 ministers. But notice the diversity here. Eight Scots, seven Scots Irish, seven New Englanders, and three Welsh. Now, this is a part of why when they got together, they had different preconceptions of what Presbyterianism meant. Uh, in their own uh, backgrounds, and so they had to hassle through some things uh, in those early years, but uh, yet God gave them a, a, some real unity there uh, at the beginning. And, and there's some real encouragement in the midst of this, and we're going to see how a, a split is going to emerge eventually, but from the very beginning, uh, they realize that we've just got to make compromises if we're going to work together uh, in the gospel ministry. And that, I would say, was uh, good for all. So three new presbyteries. It now is not the Presbytery of Philadelphia, the Synod. You'll see in Long Island, Presbytery of Philadelphia, and, the, and then Newcastle. The large wave of uh, immigration began in 1717. Scots-Irish began coming over really in boatloads. You read some of the eyewitness accounts. Just hundreds and hundreds of the Scots-Irish are coming over, uh, coming into the, uh, the port there in Philadelphia, uh, many of them, and then heading out to the frontier. Uh, and uh, there in that uh, area, uh, claiming the land, working the land, setting up some churches, and of course, as we know, uh, to this day, the state of Pennsylvania is really one of the more Presbyterian areas in the uh, United States. Another big area is where I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Because as you move uh, later into the, uh, the century, by the 1750s, 1760s, a lot of these Scots-Irish came down what they call the Great Philadelphia Wagon Road, down the Piedmont areas into Virginia and North Carolina. So the, North, the, uh, the old colonial churches in Charlotte are all 1760s, 1770s. Uh, as they were planted uh, by uh, some missionaries, really, that came out of Virginia at the time down into uh, North Carolina. So the massive waves of uh, immigration. It's kind of hard to believe how, how many of you have got some Scots-Irish blood on one or both sides. Now just look around. There's a bunch of us. By 1776, okay, independence, there were 500,000, it's estimated, Scots-Irish in the United States, about one-sixth of the population. And of course, they filled George Washington's army, and we were very much a part of that. That's for another day, another story. But in that new Presbyterian history, we talk about that, and there are lots of places you can read about that interesting history. All right, one of these Scots-Irish immigrants was William Tennant Sr., Comes in in 1718, a part of those early waves. He was received into the Senate of Philadelphia. He had actually been ordained as an Anglican in Ireland, but he comes over and he uh, appeals to the uh, Presbyterians that he wanted to connect with them, and they examined him, took him in. Pastor of the Neshimony Presbyterian Church near Philadelphia. Any of you know the Philadelphia area? It's Buck County, basically. 
And he begins mentoring young men, preparing to be Presbyterian ministers. Well, why? All right, again, this is in the middle colonies, all right? And so they were very concerned about how are we going to raise up the next generation of clergy? Presbyterians are committed to an educated ministry. They can go to New England and go to Harvard or Yale. They can go down to Virginia, to William and Mary. This is very costly, time-consuming. We need to have uh, a school here. And so kind of a private training academy that he, uh, William Tennant Sr., established. It pejoratively was known as the Log College, but the name stuck. You'll see why that how that becomes a bit controversial. But George Whitfield's the one who gives us kind of a description of this uh, building. What was the education like there at this log college? Well, it was much more demanding than you would think. Over the time that the log college was open, as long as William Tennant was living, about 20 young men studied there for the ministry, including four of his sons. One of the things he underscored was a real commitment to not only intense learning, he taught them Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. They had to write a Latin thesis there to graduate from the law college. And uh, so he certainly didn't hold back. He was educated at Edinburgh himself. So he had that uh, pedigree. But he was very convinced that, listen, the most important thing in the ministry is not what you know, but who you are. And he put a real emphasis on character. He said, the example that you set for your congregation is so important. What was known at the time as experimental divinity, which basically is another word of saying personal piety, holiness, obedience. He talked about the importance of meditation on the sacred page day and night. And what's interesting about the Log College, not only was it the foundation of the College of New Jersey in 1747, it really became the model and vision for Princeton Seminary when it was started in 1812. In fact, Archibald Alexander writes a history of the Log College and its alumni, its graduates. And if you read the plan of Princeton Seminary, uh, 1811, it's very clear that the development of piety in these young men studying for the ministry is just as important as what we teach them in the classroom. Fascinating. It never went away. I, I might, if, I'll recommend a book here if you have an interest. David Calhoun, who's now gone to be with the Lord. He was a church history professor at Covenant many years. Wrote two volumes on old Princeton from 1812 all the way up to, uh, I think, uh, 1929, uh, I believe are the dates. But it's two volumes, fascinating. And he spent 20 years writing that thing. And it just gives you the real picture of what old Princeton was like. Well, the graduates became the leaders in the early revivals. All right, I told you Whitfield gives us an account of the Law College when he was over here in 1739. He says, it happens very providentially that Mr. Tennant and his brethren are appointed to be a presbytery by the Senate so that they intend breeding up gracious youths and sending them out from time to time into our Lord's vineyard, the place wherein the young men study now is in contempt called the college. It is a log college about 20 feet long and near as many broad. And to me, it seemed to resemble the school of the old prophets. I wanted to say a few things about Whitfield here because Whitfield was a, a very important contact for the Presbyterians. Many of the Presbyterians invited him to uh, uh, preach and, uh, and uh, preached along with him. 
and saw him as a partner in the ministry. He also was controversial, and I'm going to talk about that. Not all Presbyterians were fond of uh, George Whitfield. But his time at Oxford really changed his life. He was, along with John Wesley and Charles Wesley, a part of what was known as the Holy Club as they sought this uh, deeper walk uh, with the Lord there. And uh, God touched him. He was ordained as an Anglican in 1736, his first trip to America, 1737. Well known for uh, his uh, compassion on the many, many orphans in Savannah. And uh, he uh, helped build uh, orphanages for them. He preaches in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. And you read accounts of some of the large gatherings. And just as he preached to large crowds in America, so he did there. But eventually, Wesley is going to carry on with the work primarily in Britain and Whitfield. Uh, really focused a lot of his efforts uh, in the New World. All right. Um, Theodore Freelinghausen, I mentioned the Dutch pietist, and he is very important. You read any account of the Great Awakening, it typically will begin by highlighting the ministry of Freelinghausen in the Raritan Valley of New Jersey. Now, he did begin criticizing his fellow clergy. He was concerned that they were not preaching about the new birth, and he didn't see people coming to faith, and he was very vocal about that. And in his itinerant preaching ministry, he put an accent upon this experimental divinity. He was very concerned that people live godly lives and pursue that. And, and basically, as he talked about the importance of faith and repentance, and then he talked about the importance of joy and obedience. This was uh, Freelinghausen's message, but people resonated with it. The Holy Spirit worked in people, and there were significant conversions and reformation of life. Both Edwards and Whitfield spoke very highly of his ministry. But one of the young Presbyterians who was just enamored with Freelinghausen was young Gilbert Tennant. This is William Tennant Sr.'s oldest son. At the age of 23, he became a minister in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and he asked Freelinghausen if he could join with him. During a, a, an illness, a tenant really did a lot of contemplation, and he was really concerned that he just was not seeing a lot of fruit in his ministry. He was hearing about Freelinghausen, and tenant really wanted the Lord to uh, use him, and so they began holding uh, joint services, although the Dutch Reform kind of complained, what are you doing with this Presbyterian dissenter? Freelinghausen, they weren't too, but they preached in both uh, English and Dutch uh, and uh, did those services together. But he would become one of the chief spokesmen for the revival side among the uh, Presbyterians. Now I want to give you a few illustrations just so you know, and this really com this comes out of uh, Archibald Alexander's book. He gives some illustrations. What is the testimony of some of those young Presbyterian graduates of the Law College? When they began preaching about the importance of the new birth, genuine conversion, a life of joy and obedience, and they saw people's lives changed. And these were done in the context of these communion seasons. It, it sometimes was in the local church individually, sometimes as multiple churches would get together on a weekend and have these services together. And they saw things began to happen. Well, here's Gilbert Tennant, and then I'm gonna talk about a couple of others, and I want you to see the different context here. Gilbert Tennant writes, frequently at sacramental seasons in New Brunswick, there have been signal displays of the divine power and presence. Diverse have been convicted of sin by the sermons then preached. Some converted and many much affected with the love of God 
in Jesus Christ. Oh, the sweet meltings I have often seen on such occasion among many. Now from William Tennant Jr. Uh, this testimony comes from a relative that talks about uh, William Tennant Jr.'s uh, testimony about what happened at one Sunday evening service. There was an afternoon he just had a real burden for his people, spent the afternoon in prayer. And that Sunday evening, about 30 people in his congregation uh, really dealt with Jesus. And he could really see a difference in their life. And he was overwhelmed about it. But uh, ever since that time, he just talked about that Sunday evening service as his harvest day. And he remembered that. But he would continue with the uh, sacramental seasons and many other meetings. Another thing of note about William Tennant Jr. is the pastoral visitation. We've already talked about this in several of our presentations here today. About Tennant, it says that he was sure to carry the riches of Christ to every house, including preaching to the children and the slaves. And uh, here you've got that uh, real impetus, I think, that goes all the way back to Richard Baxter. How many of you read The Reformed Pastor in Seminary? All right. You know, it just is still a classic. It's been in print ever since the 17th century. It's incredible. And, uh, but what, what uh, Baxter did is he talked about how important it was to do pastoral visitation. He and his associate pastor every week visited uh, 15 to 17 families and every year 18, uh, 800 families would be visited. Of course, that's very threatening. How can we ever do anything like that? But here, here was his rationale. This is what he writes in the Reformed Pastor. He said, I have found as a pastor, I could do more good in 30-minute conversation with people in my church, in their homes, than them listening to me preach 10 years. All right, now that's one perspective. We talked a lot about the importance of the uh, ordinary means of grace and preaching on Sunday morning, and Baxter did a lot of that. And he would, is not at all uh, denying the importance of that. I would say it's more both and. It's more both and. But I think we all know the Holy Spirit uses a public proclamation of the Word every Sunday morning in ways we know. In fact, sometimes, have you ever noticed the worst sermons we preach God, the Holy Spirit uses? I think He just laughs. You think it's about you, son. <laughs> it's not. Uh, so God uses that in ways we don't even know. But there's nothing like personal interaction. And I think that's very appropriate for us in the time in which we live, in which relationships are so important, and relational evangelism. And that's what uh, pastoral visitation is often about, digging in that, both uh, ruling elders and teaching elders. Samuel Blair, another one of the Log College graduates, in the summer of 1740, a revival took place, and he talks about the Sabbath assemblies. And this was one of the times where several thousand people would gather from a number of churches, and they would have a preaching there. And he just says, the people were brought into deep distress of soul about their perishing state. Many were converted with satisfying evidence that the Lord had brought them to closure with Jesus Christ. They were enabled to believe in Christ with unspeakable joy and full of glory. So there's uh, multiple testimony from some of the ministers and they just saw uh, the folks in their congregation have uh, new lives and going to a, a deeper walk with Christ and for others, their uh, initial conversion. 
Well, Gilbert Tennant had a close relationship with Whitfield. He was very impressed by this young man. And here's a famous quote out of his journal from 1739. When how, you think it's intimidating to preach before you know your congregation or large crowd. How would you like to preach with George Whitfield in the audience? <laughs> Here's what he said. I never before heard such a searching sermon. He convinced me more and more that we can preach the gospel of Christ no further than we have experienced the power of it in our lives. Being deeply convicted of sin by God's Holy Spirit is its first conversion. He has learned experimentally to dissect the heart of a natural man. Hypocrites must either soon be converted or enraged at his preaching. He is a son of thunder and does not fear the faces of men. Very impressed with him. But notice here, you just talked about, you know, out of your own experience, then you preach what Christ has done for me. You know, there are, as we talked about, there's so many different ways we can present the faith. But you know, there's nothing quite like personal testimony. This is what God did for me. I know one of my former students at, uh, at the seminary who was just a terrible alcoholic and was really killing himself. But he told me how much he drank every day. I don't know how he survived, but God saved his soul. And he spends every week at uh, AA sharing the gospel with these guys that uh, struggle with alcohol. But I just talked to him about, he is so excited about his faith. It is just so energizing ever talking about. He is just so aglow about the gospel. He said, God delivered me. He said, I was killing myself. And uh, I just love to hear... Uh, him share that with me. I never get tired of it. But however God brought us to faith, you know, we all have a testimony that we can share. Well, let me tell you what God did for me and how my life is different. All right, well, you know about Whitfield's preaching tour there, Savannah, then heading up to Philadelphia. I always love Ben Franklin's take on this. They got to be friends. I should have picked a younger picture of Franklin there. He was in his 30s when he and Whitfield became friends, and he he writes, it was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. So here's one of our founding fathers that just couldn't deny the fact something is happening in the city of Philadelphia. And I've never seen anything like it. Well, I mentioned that Whitfield did become controversial. There, uh, this is a famous little piece. It was written anonymously, but uh, historians have figured out it was likely David Evans of Newcastle Presbytery. Newcastle Presbytery, uh, on the whole, tended to be more opposed, uh, anti-revivalist, uh, if you would. And so they had concerns about Whitfield. But here are some of the things. People wonder, so what did they get all agitated about? Well, there were issues that were legitimate, that were sometimes uh, taken to extremes, such as the call to ministry is the work of the Spirit. In other words, that you don't need the confirmation of God's people in the church. Preaching to by the unconverted of no benefit to souls. In other words, uh, they were questioning uh, the spirituality of some of the ministers. Preaching the terrors of the law. I basically talked about hell a lot and how hot it was. Uh, all true converts are certain of their gracious state. If you can't t tell us the day and the hour, you know, when you came to faith, then we have some question if you are indeed uh, in a gracious state. Converts can give a narrative uh, of a time and manner. 
a gracious person can judge the state of another. If, if I'm born again, I can certainly tell if another person is or not. And my judgment can be definitive. Persons, and this is the one that really got uh, a lot of pushback. Persons are not tied to pastors. They may seek another church where they receive the most good. This was a real threat. Now, this is a part of our experience in our uh, society today with religious liberty and the plethora of church options that people have. But in these days, you were uh, in a particular regional area. You had your pastor and your congregation, and you were just tied. This was your kind of parish, and this was the pastor over the flock. And so these new awakening preachers now are suggesting that, well, you know, if your preacher's not really feeding your soul, why don't you go over to the, church, the other church in the other little village? Big threat, big threat for them. Well, things spiraled out of control, if you remember much about this era. And then one of the most infamous sermons preached in America during this era in 1740, the dangers of unconverted ministry. Now, a lot had happened. One of the things the Newcastle men had brought before the Presbytery is this. We think a law, a law college education is inadequate, so they passed what's known as the Test Act. All law college graduates have to have further training and examination. Well, the New Brunswick Presbytery ignored that and ordained, continued to ordain law college graduates anyway. So not very uh, thoughtful about that. Uh, and then there were uh, some cr criticisms that Gilbert Tennant and Samuel Blair had read before uh, the Synod. They said, you know, some of, the, some of our Presbyterian ministers are preaching works righteousness uh, and uh, they are too much concerned about smaller matters in which men of good faith can have differences. In other words, they're wound too tight. They're fussing about the smaller issues that uh, are not important. Well, anyway, there was a lot of animosity between the groups. And so the real hero, I think, during this era was the great Jonathan Dickinson, who really becomes the intellectual leader of the Presbyterians at the time. And... Um, I'm really uh, drawn to him and just his, uh, his pastoral heart. And I'm going to give you an example. What, you want to know what was some of the preaching like at the time? I'm going to give you a few slides here of excerpts from his sermon. And you can see how he was trying to be a peacemaker, but trying to clarify issues with, you know, Whitfield's got issues. Some of the things he's saying are a little bit too extreme. The revivalists were concerned. About what is all this opposition to the obvious work of the Holy Spirit in our midst? And you can just imagine how the tension. Has this ever happened in your church? You know, Gilbert Tennant, can you imagine one of the ministers in your presbytery coming in and basically suggesting that I, I think a lot of you aren't saved? That's what Gilbert Tennant basically said. You're a bunch of Pharisee teachers and uh, God's judgment is on you. So things are really to the boiling point. Jonathan Dixon, one of the New Englanders, he was a Congregationalist that joined with the Presbyterians. He was of an older generation. He was about 15 years older than Gilbert Tennant, a little more maturity. Joins the Senate in 1717 and a more moderate voice supporting the awakening. He sought middle ground between the enthusiasts, the real hardcore revivalists, and the, what sometimes was pejorative called those formalists, those opposed to the awakening. Well, you see a, a sense of where he's trying to uh, find some biblical balance in his sermon of 1740, The Witness of the Spirit. And let me just read some of this and just, just see what he's saying. Just think about this tense-filled situation 
And he's trying to preach a sermon to bring the temperature down and say, let's listen to each other. The blessed spirit to convince him of sin sometimes does more suddenly by a more forcible impression, filling the soul with agony and distress from the most lively views of his aggravated sins and of the amazing wrath of God. But in others, these convictions are more gradually brought on and with lower degrees of terror and amazement. Some sinners agonize longer under these distresses before they can find rest in Christ. Others are sooner brought to act faith in Him. All must hereby be brought to such a discovery of their guilt and misery, nor be easy without an interest in Christ or the favor of God. You see what he's saying. Some, by a sudden conversion, unexpectedly to them, they had not been really meditating or thinking about these things, or at least not conscious of the Spirit working, in an instant are brought uh, to convicting faith and realize what sinners they are, and the Holy Spirit quickens them. There are others for whom this is a long, drawn-out process. And he says it's both. But everyone must be brought to discovery of their guilt and misery. In other words, the need of a Savior. All right, here's another uh, part of this sermon, the witness of the Spirit, where he talks about, well, how do you know if you're born again? How do you know if you are genuinely a child of God? The Spirit of God does in a special manner bear witness to our adoption by working in us a lively faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therein good evidence of a glorious change wrought in us by the Spirit of God. He's basically saying if you've had faith and trusting in Christ, you ought to have good assurance that the Holy Spirit's working in your life. You'll need to doubt that. Have we valued an interest in Christ above all the world and chosen Him for the portion of our souls? Have we submitted to Him as our Lord as well as our Savior? Now, how many, how many of us have heard that during our lifetime? Christ is Lord and Savior. So He kind of just cuts a direct path to that. That's what we're talking about. Uh, I'm going to just skip over that slide. It's just some uh, other material related uh, to that. Um, when uh, Tennant, uh, Gilbert Tennant comes to Boston and he uh, is a follow-up preacher to Whitfield there. Uh, he'd asked him to come do that. And then Whitfield goes over to meet uh, Jonathan Edwards, Good Fellowship. I thought it'd be appropriate to have a woman's voice present in my presentation. And what a woman this was, Sarah Pierpoint Edwards. Mary Jonathan Edwards at 17 bore him 11 children. And uh, in George Marsden's big biography of Jonathan Edwards, he very much underscores how she was a partner in ministry with him. During the time where the revival was taking place in Northampton and other places where he would preach, where inquirers would stick around after the service for a long time, she spent a lot of time counseling them and helping them walk through the issue. How can you close with Christ? And know him and so a real partnership in ministry but very impressed with Whitfield hear what she said he is a born orator you've already heard of his deep tone yet clear and melodious voice it's perfect music it is wonderful to see what a spell he casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible I've seen upwards of a thousand people hang on his words with breathless silence broken only by an occasional half-suppressed sob. And uh, he really, God used him in Northampton like other places. Let me just, uh, I want to, looking at the time, let me move on a little bit. Most of you are familiar with uh, Edwards. I want to just say a few things about him and just 
commend to you uh, particularly his work, The Distinguishing Marks, which I think is still legitimate. To, how do we tell if things are a legitimate work of the Spirit or not? It's a good framework for considering these things. And one of the things I appreciate uh, about Edwards, particularly he talks very candidly about the negative signs. He said, look, some of the things these revivalists are doing may or may not the Spirit be at work here. But I can tell you the ways that we do know God the Holy Spirit is at work. And we test these things by Scripture. But one of the things he says on the negative side, and I just wanted to make this point today because I do think about this every now and then as I consider this period of time. Edward says, you know, there was a lot of discussion about preaching the terrors. Talking about the danger and the peril that people are in and the reality of, of hell. And one of the things Edward said uh, in the... the uh, distinguishing marks. He made very clear, he said, look, I'll just tell you, if there is a place called hell and it's real, I would want somebody to tell me about it. And if one of your children was in a house on, with fire over his head, would you not scream at the top of your lungs to get them out of there? I mean, of course, he's talking about, you know, a particular era in which he lives. But my sense is, you know, as I as I read the New Testament, there's a lot of talk about God's judgment and the final judgment. And uh, let me just encourage all of us, when it comes in the text, do not skirt around it. Do not skirt around it. And uh, it's, it's a challenge, but yet the Bible's very clear about this. And one of the things I appreciate about the revivalists is that uh, they didn't hesitate when they preached on these texts to make people know about the reality of God's judgment, the reality of sin, uh, and that uh, you have a Savior who is available to you. And uh, that's a, uh, certainly a takeaway. All right, the old side pro uh, protest, you'll see highlighted there, we're just fed up with their unwearied, unscriptural, anti-presbyterian, uncharitable, divisive practices. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Well, the New Brunswick men had kind of had enough, the revivalists, so they left. They decided to establish themselves as the conjunct presbyteries of New Brunswick and Londonderry. Well, things were too late, and uh, the split came in uh, 1741. Dickinson and New York Presbytery men were not present, and it was difficult to get to presbytery meetings in those days. They were absent. He immediately tried to reach out and reconcile the two groups. He thought this is just a scandal and terrible that we have separated like this. But one of the most interesting things to note is that because of his, his efforts to, uh, to reach out, uh, the Lord really worked in Gilbert Tennant's life and really was bringing him to conviction. Let me just let you read that. This is a personal letter that Gilbert Tennant wrote to Dickinson the year after the division. Well, maybe we'd say that was evidence of the work of the Spirit in Gilbert Tennant's life. And uh, it's, uh, it's important to, uh, to recognize that uh, as terrible as the division was, that God was doing His work behind the scenes. Um, I, I'm looking at the time. Just a, a little bit more here. I want to talk about two Native Americans 
that, uh, well, a ministry to the Native Americans and one Presbyterian Native American uh, preacher. David Brainerd, that's already been mentioned, the Scottish Society supported him and his work with the Delaware Indians. And again, it was the communion seasons. He and another Presbyterian clergyman had a communion season with several thousand. David Brainerd brings 50 of the Indians with him. And he sees how God used that gathering to really touch their lives. And so he has a communion season with the, the uh, Native Americans. And uh, 38 of them are converted, baptized, and he will start a church. And we know about uh, the life of Dana Brainerd because of uh, Edward's writing. And then a name that doesn't get as much press, but I think we certainly need to know about, Samson Ockham, a Mohegan Indian who's converted during the Great Awakening and began to do missionary work among Indians on Long Island and Connecticut. You'll see he was ordained in, as a Christian minister in 1759. He too took a trip to uh, uh, England. He goes there to London to raise funds for more uh, uh, ministry among the Native Americans, but he has been called the most significant Native American evangelist of his era. All right, the Log College closes, and then the uh, Presbyterian ministers in the Senate of New York, uh, this move from having the Senate of Philadelphia to now Senate of Philadelphia, New York. New York is the former revivalist, of which Jonathan Dickinson is a part also. So they start uh, the College of New Jersey. And uh, in uh, 1747, and Dickinson is their first president. Then the ministry down into the South. Uh, the Senate of New York sent Samuel Davies down into Virginia, 1747. He initially established four preaching points. He spent a lot of his efforts trying to get dissenters' licenses in Virginia, just like McKimey had in New York. But eventually he helped establish Hanover Presbytery with seven ministers in 1755. And this becomes the mother presbytery of Southern Presbyterians uh, because there'd be missionaries out of Virginia coming to the Carolinas and Georgia and the rest of the uh, Southern colonies. Uh, his ministry extended through the time of the French and Indian War. So he was involved with uh, raising troops for some of that. And also noteworthy for his ministry to, uh, to slaves. And uh, Davies uh, regularly preached to 300 slaves there in Virginia and uh, baptized over 100 of them. And uh, one of the sermons that he preached is he really challenged the slave owners that you were neglecting your duty not to preach the gospel uh, to the Negroes. As to the affairs of religion in eternity, all men stand upon the same footing. Did he live and die to save? the poor Negroes, and shall not we use all the means in our power to make them partakers of this salvation. Do not let them shrink into hell from between your hands for want of a little pains to instruct them. I hope you would by no means exercise barbarities upon their bodies, and will you be so barbarous as to suffer their precious, never-dying souls to perish forever when through the divine blessing you might be the means of saving them. Sure, you are not capable of such inhumane cruelty. All right, the issue of slavery. Let me just say this at this point. It is true, up, up to this point, you don't find a lot of uh, discussions about the abolition of slavery. But let me tell you where it will crank up among the Presbyterians at the time of independence, the American Revolution. 1787, the General Assembly has one of its best statements saying that this evil of slavery in America must be gone. 
And one of the, the, the stories of Presbyterianism doesn't often get told. We hear the side about the, the pro-slavery positions in the South. You don't hear as much about the abolitionist sentiment in the North and parts of the South. And uh, in the new book that we, uh, we wrote together, I did write an entire chapter on the slavery debate among Presbyterians. So if you have an interest, and I wish we could talk more, but I know the, the subject comes up. But what I want you to know here is his, his concern for their immortal souls. And wherever they stood, they knew that that had to happen. All right, finally they get back together. I'm going to wind up now, but I want to talk about the reunion because I think it has some very important things to say about us in terms of our approach to ministry and evangelism. Who would, who would you think they picked to be the moderator of the reunited Senate of New York, Philadelphia? Gilbert Tennant himself, the old dangers of the unconverted ministry author. The Senate of New York gives a very positive statement as they come to reunion to concern that this really was a blessed work of God. Uh, Holy Spirit in the conversion of numbers that was carried on. And they, they admit that there were some uh, uh, miscalculations, some uh, craziness that went on, but on the whole, this is the work of God. But at that meeting in 1758, I want you to notice the statement by one of the old side ministers, Francis Allison. While we're talking about slavery, he was a fire-breathing abolitionist, uh, Francis Allison was, on the old side, and wrote a lot about it. He said, God is going to judge America if we don't get rid of slavery. But here's what, that's, that's Allison. Here's what Allison wrote on the occasion of the reunion. That first expression looked familiar to you? That is, brothers and sisters, that is the first time in American Presbyterian history that uh, our motto shows up in the minutes and in the record used by Allison. And if you want to know the history behind it, you'll have to read the Liberty of Non-Essentials. I researched that because, but it looked, the bottom line is it was probably a uh, 17th century Lutheran who first used that as best we can tell. But Richard Baxter used that expression. But notice how, how he ends his statement here. You know, we're, we're agreed in most of these points, but he says, we who have followed different modes and ways of obeying the great and general command of the gospel. You get the point? We have approached this work of the ministry and of reaching the lost here in America in different ways. Some of us have focused on our, our, in our churches. Some of us, the field preaching, itinerant ministries. And he said, we follow different modes and ways of obeying the great and general command of the gospel. But for us, there's a peculiar call for charity and forbearance. And uh, that spirit is so important. And then the plan of union ends with this. And here's where you see, the, I think the biblical balance is restored as a result of the the revivalists and the anti-revivalists getting back together. We unanimously declare our serious and fixed resolution by divine aid to take heed to ourselves, that our hearts be upright, our discourse edifying, our lives exemplary for purity and godliness. And see, this is what the revivalists had talked about. They acknowledge that. Yes, yes, purity and godliness. To take heed to our doctrine that be not only orthodox, but evangelical and spiritual. It's both and. We've got to guard our doctrine. We need to be evangelical and spiritual. Tending to awaken the secure to a suitable concern for their salvation and to instruct and encourage sincere 
Christians. Basically saying evangelism and discipleship are both a part of it. Orthodoxy and orthopraxis, uh, in effect. And a great statement. And here it comes out of a time of battle when they get back together. Brethren, this is what we can agree on and what we must do. Well, how did the Great Awakening shape Presbyterianism? I'll end, I'll end with this. And there you see a picture of Dickinson and Tennant there. Church membership increased. It certainly did. Renewed concern for morality. This is very much a part of the preaching. If, if you have really come to Christ, your life is going to be different. And this is one of the ways I think that we have opportunities as we preach through God's Word to really challenge people. Are you really walking? With Christ, And I think it's appropriate on occasion to have people do some real spiritual inventory. Because as we all know, every Sunday morning, we're preaching to folks, some of whom may not personally know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just always true. One of my favorite preachers, because he was such a strong personal evangelist, I don't know if you know this name, was Frank Barker. He's one of the founding fathers of the Christian Church in America. And when I was a, a young PCUS Pastor, I sought him out. He was a friend of my dad's. And Frank just had uh, done personal evangelistic uh, work so often. But I've heard him tell the story many times. He talks about a woman that came up to him after the service one Sunday with tears in her eyes. She said, I brought him, I brought him, but you didn't tell him. She had finally gotten her husband to come to church. Uh, and uh, Frank didn't really make the any kind of gospel presentation. He said, I really learned from that, that I've got to be sure the gospel is integrated into all of my preaching. Establishing colleges, evangelizing Native Americans, African Americans, social responsibility, the revivalist methods, the uh, using the communion seasons went on. And as Zach said in the pre previous presentation, you know, the Lord's Supper and welcoming people is a great opportunity to preach the gospel. Funerals are a great opportunity. There are just so many. But look, the church planting that took place, we're talking about a couple of churches on Long Island, and the circles represent at least ten churches. Or five, excuse me, five churches. Uh, so that by the middle of the 18th century, after the Great Awakening, just hundreds of, uh, of churches and the, the church planting efforts. And I end with this, uh, this encouraging word to all of us. St. Paul's final exhortation to Timothy. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And what you find in the Presbyterian records is basically all the ministers had a real sense, in my pastoral ministry, I'm to do the work of an evangelist. Wherever God, if it's preaching in other churches, if it's preaching in my congregation, if it's in my community, that's a part of my calling to preach the Word of God. I have to be an evangelist. And so uh, I think St. Paul's Word is uh, really resonate with our colonial Presbyterian brethren. All right. Well, I'm going to end there. Y'all pardon me. You know, it's always hard to get a historian to just shut up because history never stops. I don't know if you have any last... Can we take a last question or two? Zach, you want to come up here? I don't know if anybody wants to ask anything of either one of us. And then we'll we'll close and be gone. Yeah, uh, during Woodfield's ministry, it directed he did a lot of outdoor preaching. Uh, was that because of uh, resistance from the Anglican churches? Yes. Yeah, particularly in um, 
in England as he started uh, preaching in, in his uh, ministry in Bristol along the coast was where he went and started preaching among uh, the coal miners and he was basically uh, booted out of so many Anglican pulpits that he went outdoors, which God used for a good purpose because nobody was doing the ministry there and he caused Wesley to come help him and uh, these uh, coal miners, many of them came to know the Lord. So the same thing over here, because uh, I wanna, don't want to give you the idea. Uh, Whitfield preached in a lot of pulpits in America too, but a, a lot of outdoor meetings, particularly in the great cities. And you know, Ben Franklin was intrigued by how powerful his voice was and how he could preach to so many thousand people at one time. But uh, God did use him, like in Northampton, Jonathan Edwards Church. He preached in the indoors in the church as well as you know out in the open. I really enjoyed today. Um, I never heard this history before, so thank you. So um, when you ask people here how many of you back on this office and Irish to 1700, there are so many people raised their hand. So I heard from the global um, talk here about Afghanistan, and they will bring about probably 600,000 people Afghanistan to the U.S. So as we, um, as a private story, how we preach to them, how we sow the seed when God brought them here to America. Just because I heard through the history, we see how we preach to everywhere. Right? So that's my question. Yeah, very good. Very, do you want to take a shot? Or let me just say, in, in, in this prayer book that we recently wrote, one of the things we did is we talked about the church planning efforts uh, in this country among the, the Asians, the Latinos, the African Americans, uh, all the different ethnic groups. And now in the time in which we live now, people from many different countries of uh, Africa and Asia, South America. I don't know where the cities where you live, but in Charlotte, we have got churches trying to reach all the, those different parts of the population. And I'm just very encouraged that uh, Presbyterians and many of the other denominations are all committed to trying to uh, deal with the, uh, the ethnic diversity and also the immigrants that are coming. I know the church where my wife and I, we're, our church is ministering to an Afghan, Afghan family now, immigrant, and I know we've got Ukrainians that are coming to this country. So the, the opportunities are unlimited, unlimited. And now you make an excellent point. I just think it bookends well, the, especially the biblical and exegetical presentations from this morning, that God's redemptive reign is being extended to all nations, even as he providentially brings some of those peoples to us. So uh, being prepared to, to preach the same gospel to different people, contextually and appropriately according to their capacity, but still with great fervor for them. Are there any other questions? Uh, I think a lot of modern discussion of evangelism is very minimalistic. Like, what, what is the least amount of information that I can have to tell someone? And I, I feel like, especially as after presentation, we have a very maximal view of evangelism as the whole ministry of the church. In the, in the first great awakening, is there kind of a, like a, a turning point where you have, it's, it's not quite the full ministry of the church, it's, it's an event, it's a revival, where you have an evangelistic message that's separate. Is that kind of, I mean, I don't know what my question is, but like, is that 
the trajectory that has gotten us where we are today, or is there something to speak about there? Well, I th that, is a, that is a great question. This is where our Presbyterian heritage is very helpful to us because as I, one of the very first slides, I talked about Presbyterian's commitment to theological seriousness. And uh, part of what happened when you, when you get the, the revivalists and the anti-revivalists back together, they started really listening to each other and said, listen, we're all committed to reform theology. We've got to disciple our people which is over the long haul. This is what pastoral ministry is about. But there are occasions where, and we long for and pray for, at special times that only the Spirit Himself knows, when there is just an opportunity for evangelistic uh, preaching and discussions. I remember after 9-11, I don't know if you can remember back during that time, just in my neighborhood, people were interested in spiritual things because they're really frightened. And you know, I think we need to be sensitive to times and, and take advantage of every opportunity. And I really concur with Zach on taking the opportunity we have uh, at funerals sensitively and appropriately and, and caring, but boy, is it an opportunity just to make clear what our hope is. So I, I think it's, it's, well, I was trying to say a commitment to orthodoxy, but an orthopraxis is the goal of the church. And um, this would be a way where I would say maybe there's overlap with evangelicals in Presbyterianism, but Presbyterianism has its own strengths. And I think its commitment to not be minimalist has been a part of our, our heritage long term over this. But being keen to the fact that when there, there are appropriate times, you know, during our lifetimes, the Presbyterian ministers in the communities where I've lived, if there was a Billy Graham crusade or a a citywide uh, meetings where we're going to have a guest preacher, man, we got on board to support that. Because here's an opportunity. Who knows how God may use this? If they're preaching the gospel clearly, we ought to be on board with it. Which is one of the big takeaways of the Great Awakening too, is they were really committed to trans-denominational ministry uh, as they could. But this is part of the strength that the Reformed churches, I think, bring to the evangelical movement. Uh, is our theological seriousness and, and try to help things from getting out of whack. Because there are a lot of things within evangelicalism that are out of whack. We all know that. But Presbyterians can get out of whack too. And we need each other, I think. Just conclude with the, the additional comment that rather than being tribalistic, you know, we're just kingdom people. And in the EPC, if we can do that really, really well, and I believe that we can and we are, then that'll be a blessing. And I really think that's a big part of the vision, especially for this year's GA and kind of launching out into this next season of ministry for us all to just be kingdom people. So I just want to extend a word of thanks uh, to the speakers and to you all who have attended. Uh, there's a great reward for you in heaven for all, the, the amount of time that you've spent here. Um, and, and really thanks to the, the General Assembly office as well for really getting behind and supporting uh, these ventures. Uh, everybody has their own niches of things that they're interested in and activities they want to participate in while they're at GA. And I'm thankful for a space like this where we've been able to spend time together and network and get to know each other a bit more as well. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, two words of announcement. One, uh, if you would like to attend a networking lunch sponsored by the Westminster Assembly tomorrow, uh, Cameron Schaefer is leading a lunch on Christians need to be evangelized 
too. And if you've been here throughout the day, that's become something of a less mystical title as you kind of understand the, the way the Reformed tradition expresses that. So that's tomorrow with Cameron Schaefer. And then on Friday with Joey Sherrard is sharing the gospel in times of tumult, ancient wisdom, for new challenges, especially drawing on the wisdom of Augustine for our modern age. So additional opportunities for you to be engaged in the work that we're trying to sponsor, but we uh, encourage you to take advantage of all that's available to you throughout the week, and we're thankful to be able to be together uh, as we uh, worship and, and work together this week. Can I pray, and we'll, we'll close out today. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We know that your word teaches us that once we were not a people and once we had not obtained mercy, uh, but now we are a people, your people, and now we have obtained mercy, uh, the richness and the lavish mercy that is in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we've been called into that kingdom, make us uh, emissaries of it as we go out and proclaim that there is forgiveness full and free in Jesus' name to all who would come and receive him with joy and gladness and repentance, casting off any hope in themselves and receiving and resting him as he has offered to them in the gospel. Lord, thank you for our church, the EPC. We pray that you would bless our continuing ministry together this week. May all that we say and do be unto the glory of your name alone, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Thank you for being here today.